0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.tv, University of California Television. Like what you learn, help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I don't like this contraption here. I'm sorry. It's staring me in the face. Nor do I like too many things. So, what I look used is an old fashioned ID, my purse. That goes right into my purse. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I want to thank the Spangum Family Foundation and the Spangum family and Leonard and the Jewish uh, Studies Program at the University and every single one of you who made the effort to come and observe with us Yom HaShoah. My name is Eva Kor. I am a survivor of Auschwitz, a survivor of medical experiments conducted by Dr. Joseph Mengele. And now that I am 82 years old, I am trying to survive old age. And I found out that a lot more challenging than I thought. My lecture is divided in three parts. Part one, how I survived Auschwitz. Part two, the lessons that I have learned from my survival. And part three, we are going to open it up to questions, answers, and then Of course, we will have book signing, and selfies, and I don't know what young people want today. (laughs) Seventy-two years ago at this time, I was crammed in a cattle car with my family. There were 100 people, among them my father, Alexander Moses, age 44. My mother Jaffa 38. My oldest sister Edith 14. Miriam and I, who were 10 years, my middle sister Alice 12. And Miriam and I, who were 10 years old, twins. I wanted to imagine a crowded hot cattle car with only four little windows at the top for air no provisions whatsoever, as it was chugging along the European countryside without us knowing where on earth we are being taken. Four days later, the cattle car stopped. We heard a lot of Germans yelling orders outside. I could see nothing really, because those windows were very high, but I saw a little patch of grey sky through the barbed-wired windows. As soon as we stepped down from the cattle car onto a cement platform called the selection platform, because people were selected to live or to die, I didn't know it then. My mother grabbed my twin sister and me by the hand. We were her youngest children, and she hoped somehow, as long as she could hold on to us, that she somehow she could protect us. Everything was moving very fast, pushing, shoving, crying, and yelling. It was the most confusing place and scary place I have seen. I am 10 years old. I am standing there on the selection platform, and in my childish curiosity, I looked around, trying to figure out what on earth is this place. And as I looked around, I realized that my father and two older sisters were gone. Never ever did I see them again. Now we are holding on to mother's hand even tighter as the Nazi is running yelling in German, twins, twins. We did not volunteer any information. We had no idea what worked there. He noticed us, demanded to know from my mother if we were twins. And my mother asked if that was good, and the Nazi nodded yes. And my mother said yes. My mother was pulled to the right. We were pulled to the left. I never even said goodbye to her but I didn't really understand that this would be the last time we would see her. It took a total of 30 minutes and the whole family was gone. Miriam and I became part of a group of little girls, all twins. In our group there were 13 sets of twin girls between the ages of two and 16. I am sure that on that long selection platform they were little boy twins, 2 to 16 and older. Our group also had a mother, the mother of two 7-year-old twins, and I knew her. Her name was Mrs. Changeri, and she was my mother's friend. We were taken in for processing, to a processing center. We were processed. That meant that our hair was cut short, our dresses were returned, with a huge oil-painted red cross on the back. And we were tattooed as they heated a needle attached to a handle over the flame of a lamp. When the needle got hot, they dipped it into ink, and then they burned into my left arm, dot by dot, the capital letter A-7063. My twin sister Miriam became capital A-7064. Auschwitz was the only Nazi camp that tattooed its inmates. I do not know why, but that is the way it was. Then we were taken to our barracks, crude and filthy wooden barracks or horse barns. They were used for, as barns for horses. Inside, the barrack was divided in two with a brick bench, and on each side of the brick bench there was a walkway and then the three-story-high bunk beds, crude, filthy. Miriam and I were given a bunk bed on the bottom, and we thought it would be nice, after four days, being cooped in the cattle car, that we might be able to stretch out and sleep. But I couldn't sleep, and as I was tossing and turning, I noticed something big and dark moving on the floor. And I counted them. When I got to five, I jumped up screaming. These were the biggest mice I have ever seen. A girl from the top bunk said, "Silly kid, these are not mice; they are rats. And better get used to them because they are everywhere." So now we couldn't even try to go back to sleep. We went to the latrine. And as we entered the place, there on the filthy latrine floor were the scattered corpses of three children. I have never seen anybody dead before. But to me, it became clear that in this place, children were dying. And I immediately made a decision that I will do whatever I can, whatever is within my power, to make sure that Miriam and I shall not end up on that filthy latrine floor. People sometimes ask me, why didn't I tell Miriam about it? It's a good question. And as I thought back about it, What would have happened if I said to Miriam, Miriam, I made the decision you and I will survive and walk out of this camp alive. She might have asked me, how on earth are you going to do that? Well, of course I didn't know how to survive Auschwitz, but now she would have put doubt into my mind. From the moment we left the latrine, I did everything instinctively, and I did everything instinctively right. I never let any doubt and fear enter in my mind. In our barrack, I want to describe to you how we lived. I want you to imagine little girls between the ages of 2 and 16. We were huddled in our filthy bunk beds that were crawling with lice Rice was a very big problem, and rats. We were starved for food. Starvation at Auschwitz was a very big problem. I don't even today understand how we survived in the meager supply of food that we got. We were starved for human kindness, and we were starved for the love of the mothers and fathers we once had. We had no rights, but we had a fierce determination, and all we could really concentrate on how to survive one more day and how to survive one more experiment. I was used in two types of experiments. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we would be placed naked in a room for eight hours, and they would measure just about every part of my body, compare it to my twin sister, Miriam, and then compare it to charts. Those experiments were not dangerous, but even in Auschwitz, I had trouble coping with the fact that they treated me like I was a nobody and nothing. On alternate dates, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we would be taken to a lab that I call the blood lab. There they would tie both of my arms to restrict the blood flow. They would take a lot of blood from my left arm and give me a minimum of five injections into my right arm. Those were the deadly ones. After one of those injections, I became very ill with a very high fever effect I desperately tried to hide. Next visit to the blood lab, they did not tie my arms for blood taking. Instead of that, they measured my fever, and I knew I was in trouble. I was taken immediately to the hospital, which was another barrack, was filled with people who looked more dead than alive. Dr. Mangala came in next morning with four other doctors. He never ever examined me. He only looked at my fever chart. And then he immediately said, laughing sarcastically, said, Too bad. She's so young. She has only two weeks to live. I knew he was right. But I refused to die, so I made a second silent pledge that I will prove Dr. Mengala wrong, I will survive and be reunited with my twin sister, Miriam. For the following two weeks, I have only one clear memory. I remember crawling on the barrack floor because I no longer could walk. And I was crawling to reach a faucet with water at the other end of the barrack, because this barrack was not even allocated water. People were brought there to die. And as I was crawling on that filthy barrack floor, I kept fading in and out of consciousness. And even in a semi-conscious state of mind, I kept telling myself, I must survive, I must survive. After two weeks, my fever broke, and I immediately felt a lot stronger, but it took me another three weeks, for a total of five weeks in the hospital. Then my fever chart showed normal, and I was released and reunited with the other twins and my twin sister, Miriam. The happiness of our reunion was short-lived, Miriam looked very sick. She looked actually like the living dead I left in the barrack. And I could not understand what happened to her. And I asked her, I said, Miriam, what happened to you? What have they done to you? She said, I cannot talk about it. I will not talk about it. And Miriam and I never talked about Auschwitz until 1985. That's a very long time. I believe that children who fight for their life, whose safety has been violated, cannot go back to the experience, even as grown-ups, until they feel physically safe. So in 1985, I asked Miriam, I said, do you remember when I was taken to the hospital? She said, yes. I said, well, what happened to you while I was in the hospital? She said, For the first two weeks, I was kept in isolation with Nazi doctors studying me day and night, and all I can say is that they were waiting for something to happen. I did not know what that was because they didn't tell me, nor do I know if it happened or it didn't happen. I told Miriam, It didn't happen. I spoiled the experiment. I survived. Would I have died, according to the Auschwitz Museum, Mengele would have killed Miriam with an injection to the heart, and then Mengele would have done the comparative autopsies. My diseased organs and Miriam was the control. In Auschwitz, according to the Auschwitz Museum, Mengele used 1,500 sets of twins for a total of 3,000 individuals. The estimated number of surviving Mengele individuals are about 200. The rest probably died in the experiment. So I asked her, what happened to you after the two weeks were up? She said she was taken back to the labs, injected with many injections that made her feel very sick. After the war, we went back to Romania after nine months in refugee camps, and when we arrived home, the house was ransacked, neglected, and all I found as we were walking through the house was three crumbled pictures on a bedroom floor, and that was all that was left of my family. We did not know what would happen to us, and Aunt, we knew that we were coming back. My father's younger sister took us in, and we lived with her in the big city of Cluj, or Clausenburg or Koloszwarg, and uh, communism took over. Well, communists had the most wonderful slogans. Equality, brotherhood, and freedom. I loved those words. So I joined the Youth Communist Party. I was uh, 14 years old in 1948 when we had a big May Day parade and I took I was the leader of thirty little pioneers with red neckties. Then we went for a picnic at the park at noon and then I was told to take my pioneers to a torch parade. Well, I had to study next day, and so did the pioneers, and I thought we were parading too much. That it was more important to study, so I sent everybody home. Next day, I was called into headquarters, demanding to know, where were you with your troop? So I told him it was more important to study than to go to one more parade. He began pounding the table. What? Don't you know that when you are in the Communist Party, you are not supposed to think; You are supposed to follow orders. So I said, OK, if I cannot think, I don't want to be in your party. He began laughing. You really are a stupid kid, aren't you? I want you to realize I was a survivor of Auschwitz. So what could they do to me, I thought. So he said, we are going to kick you out of school, and you cannot attend any school in Romania. Well, at age 14, I thought that I still needed to learn some things, so I reluctantly remained in the Youth Communist Party, but I can tell you one thing for sure. I was not a very good communist. My aunt said to me, Eva... If anybody ever gets in trouble, it's always you. How on earth do you always get in trouble? So she said, we are going to immigrate to Israel, and we applied for visa to immigrate. Well, the Romanians weren't eager to let go of us. It took us two years, and two years later, permitting us only the clothes on our back to take with us. So we were wearing three dresses and a winter coat in the middle of the summer. We arrived in Israel in 1960. I was 16 years, 1950, I was 16 years old. We were sent to a youth aliyah village which is an agricultural school and there were many children from 30 countries saved who survived the, the war. We worked for hours a day and we went to school for hours a day. And then when we turned 18 in 1952, we were drafted into the Israeli army. Miriam was sent to medical corps and she studied and became a registered nurse. I was sent to engineering corps. I studied and became a draftsman. I liked my job and I was stationed in Tel Aviv. So I remained in the Israeli army for eight years, reaching the rank of sergeant major. In 1960, I met a tourist from Terre Haute, Indiana, <laughs> who, was, who survived the Buchenwald concentration camp. He was liberated by a lieutenant colonel from Terre Haute, Indiana, Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Neff. When the war ended, my husband said to Lieutenant Colonel and Leff, you Americans are very, very nice. I would like to go to America. Will you help me? And they did. So my husband lived in Terre Haute, Indiana, and never wanted to live anywhere else. I married him in 1960, so I came from Tel Aviv to Terre Haute. That's quite a big jump, I can tell you. Miriam got married in 1958 to an Israeli. She expected her first baby in 1960, and she developed severe kidney infections that did not respond to any antibiotic. Second pregnancy in 1963, the infection got worse, and this is when the Israeli doctors had to study her and found out that Miriam's kidneys never grew larger than the size of a 10-year-old child. I begged Miriam not to have any more children because every pregnancy seemed to be a life crisis, but she did not listen to me. She had a child eight years later, and after the baby was born, her kidneys deteriorated and no doctors could help her. So in 1987, she had to go on oral dialysis or have a new transplanted kidney. Well, she, before she even talked to me, she put her name on a transplant list. I had a simple solution. I had two kidneys and one sister. So I donated my left kidney in 1987, and we were a perfect match. At that hospital, they have been doing kidney transplants for 10 years. And all of these people were given anti-rejection medications. There were over 2,000 survivors. None of them developed cancerous polyps in the bladder, except Miriam did a year after the transplant. The Israeli doctors kept asking me to try to find our files, try to find out what was injected into our bodies. I have done everything humanly I could. We never found our files, nor do we know what was injected into our bodies. Miriam's cancer metastasized, and she died June 6, 1993. I will take you back to the camp because I want to give you a little bit of information. How does a 10 year old child function in a place like Auschwitz? Most of you might have traveled with young children, and when you travel with them, they might ask you, When do we get there? Not because they want to nag, but children function completely differently than teenagers and grown ups. It takes a child a lot of mental energy to function in the here and now. Therefore, they cannot project forward, nor can they project backward. So when I was in Auschwitz, I thought that the whole world was one big concentration camp, that everybody in the world lived like I lived, without any parents or family, starving to death, surrounded by Nazi guard day and night. And that is the way the whole world was. Until August of 1944, end of August, an airplane appeared over the skies of Auschwitz. It was flying very low. I could see the American flag on one of the wings, I know that the public statement about Americans bombing Auschwitz it said that Americans never did. 10 years ago my husband came back one day said I met a friend at the breakfast club today. His name is Bob Sanders. He told me that he was a pilot flying over Auschwitz. I said I must meet him right away. I met with Bob Sanders, and he told me that was correct. He was one of the pilot bombing Auschwitz. I said, could you just sign a document for me? He said, no. We were told that that was top secret, and we could never publicly divulge it. Well, next year, I gave Bob Sanders a letter of thanks, and I said, dear Bob Sanders, many, many years ago, you were a young pilot far away from home, flying over Auschwitz in trying to free us. I was a little girl below, looking up to that airplane. You gave me hope to live one more day, to survive one more experiment. The air raids continued and increased. By November, it felt like a full-fledged battlefield. And suddenly, all the experiments stopped. We, the children, developed a slogan, Someday soon, we will be free and we will go home. But we had no idea how freedom would happen. The air raids continued until January 27, 1945, when one morning we woke up It was quiet, eerily quiet. We wondered, could this be the day we will be free? Late in the afternoon, a woman ran into the barrack, yelling at the top of her voice, we are free, we are free. I said, what does that mean? How do I know that she's right? I don't see any signs for it. So Miriam and I went outside, but it was snowing heavily. I think we stood there maybe 30 minutes until my eyes got used to the poor visibility. At a distance, I saw lots of people, and they were all wrapped in white camouflage raincoats. They were smiling from ear to ear. I had no idea who they were, but one thing was important for me, that they didn't look like the Nazis. We ran up to them. They gave us chocolate, cookies, and hugs. And this was my first taste of freedom. For me to realize that Miriam and I were alive, that we have triumphed over unbelievable evil, that my little promise to myself that first night in the latrine became a reality. That was an unbelievable experience. I want to thank you all for coming here tonight. My, this lecture today is lecture number 60 this year. Last year I gave 203 lectures. I am telling you all that so you would realize that I talk a lot. <laughs> now, why do I talk so much? Not because I like to hear the sound of my voice. But I want to share with you, particularly many young people here, what I have learned from my unique life. I call them life lessons. And I want to share with you three life lessons. Life lesson number one. Never ever give up on yourself or on your dreams. And as I look at your young faces, I realize. I actually remember growing up is very hard. It's very hard even if you live in this beautiful California, even if you have a loving parent. And wouldn't that be a wonderful idea that every child in the world is born to loving parents and even if your loving parents are very wealthy and they can afford to buy you designer jeans with holes in them, (laughs) I know that's happening, I don't understand it, even then every single one of you wonders how on earth do I fit? into this big, big, mixed-up world? Will I be able to accomplish in life what I set out to do? I can tell you, I want you to remember that there is always hope after despair, and there is always a tomorrow after disaster. And if we don't give up on ourselves and on our dreams, we can accomplish anything we put our minds to. I had no idea how to survive Auschwitz. I tried different thoughts and ideas, and here I am, 71 years after liberation, very happy and proud to be alive. I also want to address a thing with young people. I know that many of you wondering how you will accomplish what you want to do in your life. Just remember a few things. Become the best you that you can become. You cannot become the best me or somebody else. And if I would like, I would like to be five foot seven, no matter what I did, it will never happen. Actually, I've been shrinking, frankly speaking. You cannot become anybody else but who you are. All you have to study, everything you can study. Try to improve your surroundings. And my executive director, Kir, who is here with me, even today, and I can't bend down anymore, I have a grabber. When I see a piece of paper on the floor, I will pick it up because I want to improve my world a little bit. Even that little is improving it. And we can all do it. Or I want to, if I have a neighbor who is older than I am, I would like to see if they are okay. There are a million and a one thing we can do that doesn't take a lot of money to improve the world. I challenge you to be the best you that you can be. And when you are the best you that you can be, you will be very happy. You will like who you are, and you are going to be great give great pride to your parents and your community. On the other hand, like, look at the other extreme. You can become the worst that you can be. You drink too much or on drugs, you are failing your classes, you don't know when you're ending up on the streets. Are you going to be happy? I don't believe so. And it all depends on what you put in your mind. Now, for instance, if you want to accomplish something, put that thought in your mind. Don't ever say, oh, that's too difficult. I'm not going to be able to do it. When you give such an order to your thoughts, you are not going to do anything. On the other hand, just try for a little experiment. Tell yourself, I am going to do that, and I am going to try everything that I have to do that. And see how your mind is following your orders. It is amazing. And who is in charge of your mind? Every single one of you are in charge of your own mind. Life lesson number two. I want you to know that when I survived Auschwitz, I was 11 years old. I desperately needed parents, and I desperately needed hugs and kisses from my parents, but I got none. So, when you see your parents with Mother's Day just coming up around the corner, I want you to do me a favor. Please give your moms, your mothers an extra hug and an extra kiss for all of us children, who survived the camps, who never again had any mothers to hug and kiss. Life lesson number three. I forgave the Nazis. I forgave everybody who has ever hurt me. And it didn't happen to help the Nazis, nor did I plan that, I just stumbled on it. After Miriam died, I came home on a Sunday afternoon from an open house. There was a message on my answering machine from my brother-in-law telling me, I'm sorry to inform you, but your sister died. I was not quite prepared to live in a world without my sister. I immediately called Israel, and I told my brother-in-law that I have never buried any member of my family. Such a simple human gesture and I wanted to go to Israel. I actually wanted to touch my sister, say goodbye to her, and even say goodbye to my kidney she was taking with her. But my brother-in-law said to me, we can't wait for you, the funeral is in 10 hours, Israel is seven hours ahead, and the flight from Newark, New Jersey, as I took it this January, Direct flight from Newark to Tel Aviv is 10 hours. I kept pleading with him, but he said they cannot wait for me, so I was left with a lot of pain. I would wake up many nights, suffocating. I could feel exactly the way Miriam died, and her lungs were filled with cancer. Then I couldn't go back to sleep, so I thought I would do something in her memory that is my way of coping with pain always. Two years later, I opened Candles Holocaust Museum and Education Center, and my nightmare stopped. About a month after Miriam's death, unrelated to Miriam's death, I received a telephone call from a professor at Boston College, John Michalchik, who asked me to come and speak at a conference on Nazi medicine. And then he said to me, when you talk, when you come, it would be nice that you could bring with you an Nazi doctor. Stunned at such a request, I was not left silent. I immediately blurted out, and where exactly do you think I could find one of those guys? Since last time I looked, they weren't advertising in the yellow pages. So he said to me, Eva, think about it, maybe you come up with some idea, and I did. I remember next day that the last project that Miriam and I worked on was a documentary done by German television, and there was a Nazi doctor from Auschwitz. We finished the documentary in 1992. This was just a year later. And there was a Nazi doctor from Auschwitz, Hans Munch, and I thought he might be still alive. I, we got his telephone number, we invited him to come to Boston, he said he was not going to Boston, but amazingly, he was willing to meet with me at his house in Germany. So August of 1993, I am heading to Germany to meet an Nazi doctor. I was so scared. I didn't realize that I would be that scared, and the closer it got, the worse it got. But I was curious, number one, maybe he knew something about our experiments, and curious why was he willing to meet with me. We arrived at his house. He treated me with the utmost respect, kindness, and consideration. Unfortunately, he knew nothing about our experiment, because Mangala always said that the twins' experiments were top secret. He gave me a good interview for my Boston conference, and then out of the blues I asked him simply, You were in Auschwitz. Did you ever walk by the gas chamber? Did you ever go inside the gas chamber? Do you know anything about the gas chamber? And he immediately said, this is my problem. This is my nightmare that I live with every single day of my life. And he went on describing the operation of the gas chamber. Zyklon B, and you can Google it, looks like pellets of white gravel. The gas did not come from the shower head. B was packed in canisters, opened outside the roof and dropped through vent-like holes. It fell to the floor and it operated like dry ice. So the gas was rising from the floor and as people were it was hitting their nostrils, they started suffocating and they were trying to get away from the rising gas climbing on top of each other, forming a little bit of a mountain of intermingled bodies. Dr. Munch was stationed outside, looking through a peephole. When the people on the pile stopped moving, he knew that everybody was dead, and he would sign one death certificate. No names, just the number of people that were killed. I immediately told him that this was very important information, and I wanted him to go with me to Auschwitz and sign a document at the ruins of the gas chamber in the company of witnesses, and he immediately told me he would love to do it. I got back to Terre Haute, Indiana, very excited that I will have this original document documenting the gas chambers. I wanted to thank him. I don't know why, and I'm still surprised at that. But I didn't want to tell anybody because I was sure that my friends and family would try to stop me because it sounded crazy. But I was going to go ahead with it. I did not know how to thank him, and for the next 10 months, I brainstormed every time I... Um, thought of something. I was driving, doing the laundry, cleaning the house, cooking. I brainstormed, and after 10 months, a simple idea popped into my head. Back again to the idea of how our minds work. It's an amazing organ, the human mind. How about a letter of forgiveness from me to Dr. Munch? I immediately knew that this was a meaningful gift for him. But what I discovered for myself was life-changing. I discovered that I had the power to forgive. No one could give me that power and no one could take it away. It was all mine to use it in any way I wished. And I would like to remind every single one of you here that you do have the power to forgive, No one can give it to you, and no one can take it away from you. So use it in any way you wish. After four months, I liked what I wrote, but then I was concerned about my spelling, so I called my former English professor to correct my spelling. And we met about three times. The third time, she told me, "Naiva, that's very nice that you forgive Dr. Munch, but your problem is with Dr. Mengele. I tried to debate that. She said, "Okay, I've been meeting with you, correcting your spelling. I want to ask you for a favor today. When you go home, pretend that you are talking to Mengele and telling him that you forgive him, because I wanted to find out how might you feel if you could do that. Sounded like an interesting idea. I went home that evening closed the bedroom door, picked up a dictionary, made a list of nasty words and then I read them clear and loud and at the end when I finished I said in spite of all that I forgive you and I had a tremendous feeling that I even had the power over Joseph Mengele that the last relationship between me and Joseph Mangala was my forgiveness, and there was nothing that he could do to change it. It made me feel very good. Now if I forgave Mangala, I wasn't hurting anybody, and might as well forgive everybody who has ever hurt me. So that is the way we arrived in Auschwitz. Dr. Munch came with his son, his daughter and granddaughter. I took my son and my daughter. Dr. Munch signed his document, I read and signed mine, and I immediately felt that all the pain was lifted from my shoulder. I was no longer a victim of Auschwitz, nor was I a prisoner of my tragic past. I was free of Auschwitz, and I was free of Mengele. If you want to find our website, all you have to do is Google Eva Core. Go to education center and you will find these two documents and you can download them. I also want you to know that I am a big Twitter. I tweet a lot. <laughs> and I began tweeting basically if I come up with an idea about forgiveness or trying to help refugees in Syria or like today I put it... 70, uh, today, is 72 years since we were taken to Auschwitz, so I put in something about the Holocaust. And here are some ideas about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the best revenge. The perpetrator, because the perpetrator no longer has any power or influence over the victim. Forgiveness creates a feeling of wholeness. In thought, spirit, and action, going in the same direction, creating a force for good. It's free. I like that idea. Everybody can afford it. It works. It has no side effects. And if you don't like the way you feel as a free person, you can go and take your pain back. No one will stop you. As I've been dealing with the issues of Holocaust, I also observe that Hitler himself was a very angry man. And I see many angry men who want to create war. Therefore, I call anger a seed for war. People who forgive, like I have forgiveness, forgiven, are at peace with themselves and the world. Therefore, I call forgiveness a seed for peace. If any of you in the audience today has any problems and you want to try my free recipe for healing, take a piece of paper and a pen and write a letter to the person or the people who have hurt you. Please do not mail it to them. At the bottom of the letter, you must write, I forgive you, and you must mean that word. And if you succeed in your forgiveness, you are going to feel a sense of liberation that you have never felt before. I often describe the feeling like Maria in the sound of music being on the top of the hill and feeling the fresh air flowing. Through her hair and body. And if you succeed in doing that, pass it on to other people. Because I need all of you to help me sow those seeds for peace throughout the world. Congratulations, you survived my lecture. come up to the microphone. May the memory of your parents and your brothers and your sisters be a blessing. <clears throat> and may, they be, may their souls be comforted in heaven. Would you speak, please... <clears throat> about what forgiveness is and how you, um, yeah, what it is and how you experience it. Well, I will, what I will do, because it, it's the simplest thing. I have a little statement here that I have put together. So I usually don't use it for lectures, but you are asking me to describe a lot of detail. I thought that I did in my own statement, and I hope I find that piece of paper. I might not. Maybe. If not, I will just go back. It has nothing to do with the perpetrator. It has nothing to do with the Nazis. Forgiveness is an act of self-healing and to discover that I I have that power is very, very important because most victims, who are victimized, feel in the memory of my parents. I mean, that has nothing to do, forgiveness is not in the memory. It is my power and my idea that I, in spite of the fact that I survived Auschwitz and I lost my whole family, continuing to suffer, how, how, how does that honor my parents or family? Instead of that, I want to honor them with my decision to live free and to be happy. And I would say if I live my life to the best of my ability and I am the happiest person, I feel that this is the best revenge against the Nazis. Being miserable, whom on earth does it help? I don't think my parents would be proud or happy to see me miserable, or my sisters. And I know, actually, today there was Yom HaShoah, observant, so in Israel, they had a radio program where they interviewed me and another Mengele twin who who said her life, she believed that she has to be miserable for the rest of her life. And unfortunately, the interview was done in Hebrew, so I am not sure how good I was at it, because my Hebrew is pretty good, but not as good as English. I found it sad that she believes, that she survived to be as miserable as she could be. How on earth does it help the memory of her parents? I do not understand that. I, I feel, I mean, I don't exactly know how, what you wanted me to tell you, but forgiveness is not condoning. How can anybody condone what happened? I have never said I condone it. But to realize that I and every one of you here has power over their daily life. We do not have to be the past, the tragic past that we were at times experiencing. We don't have to be the past. We can be the future. And the future is up to us to decide how we are going to feel and how we are going to behave. Thank you. i 'm very confused and perplexed, and i 'm hoping that you'll help me okay. understand something okay uh, we 've all heard about the holocaust, uh, but genocide is still going on, and why is it still tolerated it 's gone in Rwanda, it 's going on in Darfur right Why is it tolerated? Why is it accepted well I am not accepting it. I feel a little bit guilty sitting right here with you because I have a place called home, and I have a roof over my head and a bed I can climb in, and every single one of you probably do, and I feel safe. I do not understand why it's going on, but I will ask you for another favor. I cannot change what's going on in Darfur. And actually, about a month or so ago, I was asked by a former representative of United Nations, and he asked me, the people of Darfur are asking for your advice. I said, wow, I didn't even know they knew I existed. I said, tell them not to be such willing victims. And he was stunned. What does it mean? I said, they have accepted their destiny. In 10 years, the world tried to help. Al-Bashir was condemned to jail, but nobody can find Al-Bashir. China keeps selling armaments to Al-Bashir. If there are 7 million people in Darfur right now who all of them live in dying conditions or are some who are free. Let's say that those who can tweet, email, just said that tweet through the system, seven million, let's say one million tweets telling the story of Darfur and pointing the finger at the guilty people. Might that make a difference? I don't have all the answers, but I I am only one mind. All of you spend one hour a month in thinking how you could come up with an idea to help the people of Darfur. It's not only my responsibility, it's every single one of ours' responsibility. I agree. Thank you. Um, before we thank um, Eva, uh, let me remind you that as soon as we're finished, uh, she will be seated at the table, uh, and if you come around to the um, staircase that's on your right, um, she will sign your books. And you, probably, you really want to have this book in your library, I think. Um, so um, from all of us, Uh, We thank you very, very much for sharing this and really, I think, giving us new ways to experience freedom ourselves. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.